Pleasant Good Evening Mets fans and welcome back to the Pleasant Good Evening Podcast, episode 82 here on PGE. I'm Sam Lebowitz, joined as always by Jack Hendon. And Jack, the New York Mets, eight and a half up in the division, the largest lead they've ever had in the month of May in franchise history, and they did so in style with their first sweep of the season, finishing off the fills last night. A great week into Mets baseball. Lots to talk about today. Jack, how are you? I'm great. I'm great. I stayed up and watched the whole ESPN game, and then I got a full eight hours of sleep. I'm doing great. Uh, Nick Plummer, very good. Uh, Phillies, very bad. Yes. I, when was the last time the Mets swept a series from the Phillies? It's it got to it, – it, like – it can't be too, too long ago because they've they've played their best baseball against the Phillies for the most part, I feel like, for the past few years. I mean, there were – ah, that's not necessarily true because there was that four-game sweep a couple of years ago in Philadelphia. That sucked. But uh, well, last year they swept us in three games, um, which was also sort of a – right, that came – that was like in August, I think, and that's sort of when the wheels started to really – fall off the bus I feel like even when they play like their best baseball so to speak against the Phillies there's always one game in a series where somebody has kept the Mets scoreless or someone blows a lead um it's even on in the good series that they go two out of three doesn't seem like they sweep a lot back in like 2015 and 16 that was probably more regular um this Phillies team though man they're they're and they stink. Joe Girardi is so, probably in the hot seat, right? It, they are so fun in the worst yeah. way possible. It's it's a shame that this onslaught against the Phillies that we've had to start the season is now over and that we get a lot more Marlins uh, over the next couple of months than we do Phillies. I think we don't see the Phillies for another two months now. Yeah, uh, that's all August. But it's been, what, 12 games against the Phillies now? And that's right. Yeah. What do they finish nine and three? I think Something. so. I think, yeah, there was, they lost one game in the last series. They, they lost the one, one game in the first series. Yeah. And then they lost one game at home. The one time they came home. So yeah, three losses, nine wins, three losses um, in four series against the Phillies and a couple games in, in that stretch that they really should have lost. I mean, the Sunday night baseball game in particular is one, but obviously you go back to the game in Philadelphia that they were losing the big comeback game. Um, mm-hmm. They probably should have been a little more even in terms of win losses against this Phillies team in their head to head so far this year. And first of all, it's a testament to how well this team has played because obviously they've had some ninth inning comebacks this year, which have been really, really fun for us as fans. And they've, played a really cohesive baseball game through all nine innings this year they don't really give up they've quote unquote if you want to believe the narrative bought into buckball um and and don't give up and they like to rally and all that stuff and they've done that a few times against the phillies but also it's it's really really satisfying to do it against the phillies because oh my god i like beating the phillies a lot i i like just watching the phillies out met the Mets that's my thing because really what this was we saw this on Friday's game we saw this a little bit on Sunday too in terms of management um Buck Schalter and Joe Girardi definitely like tread the line a little bit I really when we talk about the Nick Plummer thing I don't know how you felt about it but I was 
very much against at the time, the idea of leading off the bottom of the ninth down one uh, with somebody who had, what, to that point, four big league at-bats. Um, yeah. It, when Jeff McNeil was just there on the bench, I thought, I mean, if you're leading off and you're down a run and you have McNeil to just stick in anywhere, that would be the place to do it. But it worked out, right? I mean, Plummer first pitch just hit a ball 114 miles per hour. Like that thing was a rocket. I mean, I literally didn't even have time to look up. I looked down, heard the thing, looked up and it was gone. It was, you know, I mean, it it was a buck masterclass, you know, but for Joe Girardi, it's a different story, I guess, because it's, you know. It's not even that Girardi did anything wrong to mismanage that game because he put his closer in with a one-run lead in the ninth inning. Like, sure. Uh, Well, yeah, taking out Castellanos was bad, but. Yeah, I think. Like. Yeah. I, I Okay. It's easy to say in hindsight, because it worked out so well for the Mets, uh, that keeping Plummer in was the right move. I honestly, this is going to sound like a load of BS. I've seen Nick Plummer play a few times in AAA this year because I've been to a handful of Syracuse games before graduation. It just seems like he always takes good at bats. It, it just seems like he puts good swings on baseballs. I've seen him hit a home run down in AAA. He had a handful. He had, I think he had six homers in Syracuse this year. I think he's a better hitter than Patrick Mazika. And I thought that if you were going to pinch it for someone in that spot, it should have been Mazika. And that is what Buck was going to do. I thought the where, where I had paused was the fact that Plummer had not taken great at bats all night and looked a little shaky out in left field, looked a little nervous, had missed that line drive that kind of led to that um, three hour long third inning. Yeah. Uh, that was just the most ridiculously long inning. I think I've ever watched a baseball ever. Yeah. Uh, yeah he struck out a couple times against Zach Wheeler, whatever Wheeler was kind of carving him up as Zach Wheeler tends to do against, hitters sometimes it's fine uh but kudos to nick Plummer because he knew what he was doing in that spot he was trying to gear up for a fastball from Corey canable he got a first pitch fastball in his happy zone he didn't miss it so everyone who thought that he should not have hit there you are a fool that includes you jack i'm sorry you are a fool yeah well i mean i feel like it didn't need to be an either or in terms of like bat for Plummer or bat for Mazika because you also had J.D. Davis on the bench. Davis having had the good at bat against Knable. That was my, I mean, obviously you wouldn't be batting Mazika in this circumstance at all either, but having both McNeil and Davis, McNeil being the guy who typically you'd want more in a leadoff spot, you would want him up there and then maybe Davis comes up next. But no, I get it. And I think- Yeah, there also in lies the, the yeah. issue of defensive positioning Two, sure. if you do wind up tying it, then, you know, uh, you're obviously going to have to put Tomas Nito in regardless uh, at, at catcher. But if you pinch hit McNeil for Plummer, then McNeil, who was getting a day to rest his legs, is going to have to go into left field. Yeah. Um, if you pinch hit Davis for Plummer, then that's a whole mess because oh yeah, um, that probably requires JD to play the outfield, which right. we know doesn't go well sometimes uh, and hasn't he hasn't done it all year um so there there were issues with pinch hitting for both of them and especially pinch hitting mcneil first um and i think buck just 
I don't know. The buck had a, had an inclination to keep Plummer in there and let him take the at bat, or he completely just forgot that he could pinch hit for both guys. Uh, because Buck is not super adept at the pinch hitting thing, uh, in, in obvious pinch hitting spots. And this one worked out. This one worked out really nicely and good for Nick Plummer. This is the Nick Plummer game. Um, his first big league hit is a homer. He's a former first round draft pick of the Cardinals. Uh, never really figured it out with the Cardinals to the point where they brought him up. He hit really, really well in AAA last year, but the Cardinals clearly didn't see enough to retain him. He was a minor league free agent. The Mets signed him to a major league contract. And uh, now that, you know, basically just guaranteeing that he gets a 40 man roster spot. Um, and with Travis Jankowski's uh, broken finger or whatever it is. Uh, it's a, yeah, it's a hand thing. Yeah. Allowed the Mets to bring up another outfielder and it paid dividends. Cause I don't think Travis Jankowski had an extra base hit all year. And Nick Plummer's first hit is a game tying Homer. So. Yeah, Plummer's going to be here a while. Um, Showalter really likes him. I do know that. Um, talked a lot at length in spring training about, like, just it was very, like, it was very he's got that dog in him on Buck's yep. part. Like, he liked the way that Plummer took at bats. He liked the way Plummer swung in the cage, you know, just little eye test things. But, I mean, it worked. Um, and, I mean, so there's the Plummer chapter, chapter in the 10th inning because not only does he – bring back a foul ball off the bat of Kyle Schwarber, which was a huge play because I did not like that matchup at all yeah. between Diaz and Schwarber. Um, he then comes up in a, in a pretty stark double play spot with two on and one out after they intentionally walked Alonzo. And he puts a great swing on the ball, gets the run in and wins the game and um, punctuates what offensively has actually been kind of a, a decent week for him in the wake of losing some playing time. Uh, and that's also really encouraging because if, if he's also hitting, you suddenly have probably like a, you know, you have like a five-headed monster, maybe even a six-headed monster at that point, if you count Guillaume with the tear he's been on. Um, it was, I mean, that was, I think, as, as exciting as Plummer's hit is and as exciting as it probably will be for a while, just to think about, um, Escobar coming through in that inning was also something that I was really really uh surprised by and we'll also remember for a while and i mean this is definitely being featured on amazing finishes right this is like the seventh such game that will be featured on amazing finishes we could have had another one this week but like we'll talk about that later um yeah but like escobar man i mean pretty good week for him i feel like we're always saying this that oh another game to be featured on amazing finishes yeah but escobar was he needed it because, yeah, he's yeah. had a better offensive week, but it's mostly come without guys on base. He's got pretty stark yeah. splits with guys on versus guys off base. I think that there's something wrong with the approach right now with guys on base. If you notice when guys are on base, he's swinging a little wild and free. Mm -hmm. And honestly, the at-bat that culminated in the walk-off hit, I think is also indicative of that because – he got a first pitch curveball and it was up a little bit, it caught a little bit of plate and he, you know, hit it for a double, but it was a first pitch curveball guys on base. And that's not usually something that you want to swing at. Uh, and he just attacked it and it worked out for him, but he did the same thing in his previous at bat, which also was preceded by them intentionally walking Pete 
to get to him. And he wound up, I think he chased the ball in the dirt on the first pitch to get bat. And yeah. he wound up striking out on a pitch up near his shoulders. Uh, so I think he's, the, the approach is, has broken down a little bit with guys on base. And I think that's been part of the problem, but maybe this hit inspires a little bit of confidence in him. And maybe, you know, sometimes guys just need to get a feel for the barrel and get, get barrel on baseball and their swing just kind of works itself out after they get the one solid hit. Uh, and, and maybe this will get him going in the right direction. He had a nice series in Philadelphia or um, in San Francisco, rather he had a, did he have a four hit game in San Francisco uh, in yeah. the blowout win? Um, that was good to see, but, you know, we haven't seen a ton of power from Eski since really the first week or so of the season in which he, he hit a, a few doubles and he had a home run in that first giant series. He's only hit one since um, that's big. If we can get him back on track, at least a little bit more towards his career averages and, and more of a, a median Eduardo Escobar. We don't need him to be great Eduardo Escobar. We don't need him to be 30 home run Eduardo Escobar. It'd be nice, but um, we, he doesn't need to be that guy. He just needs to be more of a productive hitter because especially now with, you know, Nimmo and maybe even McNeil dealing with some day-to-day type stuff that might keep him out of the lineup. Uh, he's probably gonna be batting fifth, which yeah. he's been batting fifth a lot this year. Probably shouldn't have been. I like how they lined it up more on Saturday night with McNeil batting fifth. Um, we'll see. If guys are out of the lineup, well, that worked out great for them. That Um, worked out really well. McNeil, in general, I think has fit into that five spot really nicely, and hopefully, it stays that way because it's been it's it's not only been just a good showing of play, you know, play whatnot, but the power is just suddenly like exploded with him. Is the OPS has always been great this year, but I think that really like it still hasn't been like 2019 McNeil uh, where he could actually just drive a ball that was, you know, up in the zone. Um, dude, he slugged 800 this week. Um, yeah, a couple of homers it, will help there. Yeah. Yeah. Right on the heels of that guy telling me he had no power too. I think yeah. if you, I think Anthony DeComo actually took, took apart like a, uh, he split that week even further. And obviously these are all like extremely small samples, but from the at bat, from the moment in the at-bat that that fan told him that he had no power, um, the slugging has been over a thousand. So <laughs> like no it's, 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 it'll play. It's a lot of power. Um, but I think, yeah. And I think to your point about Escobar now being their fifth hitter because of McNeil and Nimmo needing time, it's been sort of a theme that's followed even in terms of like the pitching staff, right. With, with Scherzer and DeGrom being hurt and everyone else having to move up a peg. Um, people have generally done a, a, a pretty good job of that. You know, even guys like Trevor Williams really on the fringes who have been brought up to the fifth spot in the rotation. Um, you know, they're still sort of getting the job done. Gior may getting more playing time. He's grown into it. I mean, even in one game, we see what Nick Plummer has been capable of or Patrick Mazika was capable of doing in his first. It's never just an immediate downgrade um, in terms of what you're getting on the field. Uh, and obviously we know on paper, who's better than who, right? I mean, we'd all rather have Max Scherzer pitching games than, than Trevor Williams, and we'd all rather have McNeil batting fifth than Escobar. But if people are stepping into their roles, it's, you know, and they're still winning the games, it's just, at that point, it, it you know, that's a great team in the sense that it really makes no difference. It was really of that, that they just, but when Castellanos homered off Adovino, 
I was, that was just the, the, the trademark, you know, late inning Mets dagger where they had a couple chances to break the game open and didn't. And they hand the ball off to, you know, Ottavino and he just makes a bad one bad pitch, um, you know, with two guys on and suddenly they're behind and they had a bad eighth inning against Dominguez too. Like I was, I was certain that that game was over. Um, that they had pissed it away and I was just- less I was less certain but I was I didn't think they were going to pull it out I you know against the Phillies bullpen you can never count any team out that's true I agree with you the there is some level of discussion about the bullpen that I think warrants conversation uh because especially after you know we don't really know what the deal is with Drew Smith right now if he's going to avoid the IL if he even should avoid the IL with a dislocated pinky that he suffered in that game. He reached for a, a comeback with his bare hand and bent back his pinky. ottavino um, has got to be better than that. Like, he's got to know that – well, first of all, it was a ridiculous pitch sequence in the first place. Yeah, it was, it was terrible. It was an awful pitch sequence. He had Ottavino – or he had a Castellanos flailing on a first-pitch slider, and then he poured in a fastball strike, was ahead 0-2, how do you not go back to the slider? It's it's his know. best pitch, and it's his it's a pitch that he gets whiffs on like fifty percent of the time, and he threw him another fastball, and it caught middle up. Castellanos smashed it. I don't understand the pitch call there. I don't understand uh, the thought process behind it. If he missed middle and it was supposed to be more in, that's yeah, that's one thing. But why are you throwing a fastball there in the first place? It's O two. Right. It's the first yeah. home run Adovino has ever given up on an O two count. Which is ridiculous. Well, I mean, yeah, that's the pitch that'll do it though against Castellanos, right? Like, that's like the long drive to left field pitch. That's yeah. just right in his wheelhouse. Like, you can't really do that, and especially on O two, right? Because if you throw another slider and you miss, or God forbid, you bet you skip it and guys move up a base, like you can still fine tune your approach in some way. But once you go right to the fastball, I feel like that's kind of that's end game. You're trying to blow him away there, and if you don't blow him away, then you almost have to come up with a different game plan for the next couple pitches to get back to using the slider. Yeah. You Um, and I, Jack, both pitched at some, some level in our lives. And, you know, when you have a good slider, there is merit to the idea that if you can bust a guy inside with a fastball and get him inside conscious, then he's more susceptible to that breaking ball away. Uh, And maybe that was the goal there. I don't think anyone asked Ottavino about it because I think, you know, by the end of the game, he wasn't really the focus anymore. I don't even know if he talked yeah. to media after the game. I didn't see anything because everyone wanted to talk to Plummer and everyone wanted to talk to Escobar. Um, so that was probably the thought process was, you know, get him a little inside conscious then go back to the slider away. But he missed out over the middle of the plate. Uh, and he he paid the ultimate price for it. And kudos to his team for getting him back in that game. But this bullpen is going to rely really, really heavily on Edwin Diaz and Seth Lugo uh, right now. And we're going to see a little bit more high leverage Colin Holderman. And maybe eventually at some point, if he continues throwing well, Steven Nagosik, then we probably should be. Uh, yeah. And it's probably going to eventually bite the team in the ass because listen, Holderman's been great. He's got his first seven big league outings. He hasn't a lot of run. Right. He's been good. He, he's gone multiple innings, multiple times, scoreless. I saw him pitch two innings on Saturday. I was at the game on Saturday. Um, that was my first game of the season. And he pitched two scoreless. And he looked good. 
He's throwing 95 to 97 with run. He's got a nice breaking ball with a nice shape to it. Uh, and, and he seems to be, and he's throwing strikes more than he ever really has in the minors. He's been a guy yeah. with pretty high walk totals in the minors. And that's really been the difference this year is he can, he's locating more, but is he a high leverage reliever? I, I can't make that distinction right now. Right. What I do know is that the Mets have not really developed a high leverage reliever since Vietnam. I, I can't remember the last yeah completely by accident and it was a guy that goes against all logic of relief pitch and he's a guy who throws six pitches yeah um right and he's even that starter who made to work yeah yeah even that's had hiccups because he's a guy that they made a starter and then made a reliever and then made a starter and then made a reliever yeah. and has dealt with you know a handful of injuries in that span too and before lugo i don't know i'd have to actually yeah, i like, don't know like no parnell bobby parnell probably probably parnell yeah yeah but that's i mean we're going back to like 2010 now like this is this is like it's a ridiculous timeline yeah whereas the fucking rays pull out you know pull jason adam out of their ass and and yeah. turn him into an elite reliever with yeah or like the brewers just have the brewers just have devin williams and his airbender change of just hanging around and it's just like hey you know you want to come up like Every yeah. year the Brewers have someone like, oh, hey, Aaron, know. you know, what is it? Uh, who's the guy this year? Aaron Ashby is pretty good. The left-hander who was a starter and now isn't a starter anymore. And he's like their second lefty besides Hater. And he's Aaron good. Ashby, yeah. Uh, yeah. Other teams can do this. The Mets can't. So when the Mets do it with some sort of success with Holderman, it gives me pause. It's like, okay, well, the straw is going to, the other shoe's going to drop here. Uh, eventually yeah. i hope i'm wrong I, mean, yeah. I i was talking to well, my we, boy we've seen it happen i'm sorry go on i'm sorry yeah i was i was talking to my boy pj clark who yeah. you might know from twitter um yeah. friend of the pod insofar as he's my friend he's never actually been on the pod but good guy he works social media with the detroit lions now mm -hmm. uh and he was texting me about holderman and he said what he he likes holderman he thinks that holderman's got it and I agree with him. I think Holderman's got the smell right now. Yeah. Uh, he's got that dog in him. He's got the, yeah. the that boy nice factor, as as to say. Uh, and I hope that that maintains because that would be a big, big win for this bullpen if out of nowhere they find a random high leverage guy. But you just you kind of wait for maybe the fastball command to break down or for him to start getting hit around a little bit. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess what I was going to say earlier was just that we've seen this happen already to an extent this year, which was Smith, right? Because Smith did not come in as necessarily the guy who's going to be pitching seventh and eighth innings. Obviously he had a great spring showcased a really good slider. Um, you know, the one that people were calling a cutter and he got off to a good start to the year, but we look at Similar the last start. couple of games. He was, he was scoreless through his first right. 10 outings or so. Yeah. And then, but you look at what happened earlier in the week, right. With Jock Peterson. Um, I mean, he's still susceptible to the long ball. There's still, you know, hitches in his game that late in a game, I don't really want to see come out. Um, so I don't know. I guess the idea is between Smith, Holderman and Nagosik, you're going to hope that one of them sticks in some way. Um, and maybe if they like distribute those guys and their workload the right way, It'll be fine, but I mean, we're literally right now looking at a situation where Drew Smith might go to the injured list and maybe probably should just because the workload has been 
so intense for him already anyway, and it would be fine to give him a break. Um, the counter argument, of course, is that they're coming up on a really, really important stretch and should use Drew Smith if he can pitch in any of those games. Um, but really, yeah, I mean, we're at a point, I think, where Nagosik and Holderman are going to start getting a lot more time, especially, too, now that, like, we basically can't use Jason Shreve anymore. Like, I don't know what's happened in the last two weeks with him because the, the metrics did not suggest that he was suddenly going to start giving up home runs left and right. But, like, he has started giving up home runs left and right. Like, the splitter is not doing the split thing anymore. Uh, lefties are hitting him. Like, it's it's yeah. it's been really bad. It's been bad. It. Jason Shreve, going back to when he gave up the three-run home run to Jesse Winker um, in the Mazika game, that yeah. I think from that point on, he has been almost unusable. Um, yeah. And definitely considering the fact that through the first month or so of the season, he was like the third or fourth most effective reliever in this bullpen and certainly the most effective left-handed reliever in this bullpen, it's flip-flopped. He's yeah. gone to the bottom of the ladder and – Joely Rodriguez is certainly the more of the effective is is the more effective of the two left-handed relievers that they have right now. Uh, in terms of in, in general with Chasen, it's I don't know what's going on, but like he gave up the three-run home run to Garrett Stubbs in the first game yeah. of that Philly series that made that a game again. The Mets were leading seven nothing, uh, and then Carrasco kind of broke down a little bit, and they brought in Chasen Shreve. He gave up a three-run homer to Garrett Stubbs, who had one home run this season prior to that and had no career home runs prior to this season. Mm. Member of the tribe, Garrett Stubbs, by the way, Shalom. And all of a sudden, it was a 7-6 game. Uh, yeah. well, talk about a Girardi masterclass, too, by the way, just yeah, for one he... moment. That was a ridiculous decision to sit Real Muto there uh and not bring him in to bat for stubs against a lefty but it worked like i could not believe that it worked but it did but it also kind of tells you just like what we have right now at chase tree which is not a very reliable pitcher and like i i mean i'm not i'm i'm not yet in the camp of like he needs to be dfa'd because again like who are you going to go to like we're going to call up alex claudio and expect him to pitch to righties like no way but um like, I don't yeah, really want him in any of these games right now either. So there's really no one. There's like this, this St. John. He is the other left-handed pitcher on the 40-man roster, but that yeah. doesn't mean he's any good. He's unfortunately, I think you were doing this research earlier, is probably going to have to be the guy to come up if they need to recall a reliever without putting Drew Smith on the IL. Because every other reliever on the 40 that's been used this year that's in triple a right now have both been option yeah like you can't bring those guys up unless it's for an injury replacement because they've been sent down within the last 10 days uh yeah. so lock st john is like the last guy in triple a that's on the 40 that you can bring up for bullpen help we could go back to oh no you can't go back to zapaki because he's been optioned without the il thing but also do you want to go back to thomas zapaki no. Like, no, no that was, I mean, I'm, I'm so glad we don't have to talk about that game anymore. I'm so glad that, like, they immediately started winning as soon as they came back home and we could move on. Yeah. And because two game stretch, because yeah. it does bring up an interesting conversation that I, I want to kind of go back to for a second on the bullpen is sure. this team. We're, they're going to have to rely pretty heavily on the guys that are being effective right now, the Lugos and the Edwin Diaz's and the, Holderman's and the Gosics, uh, which 
may outline a problem maybe a couple weeks down the road because I think the starting pitching that they've got, especially with McGill coming back, is enough to keep them playing good baseball, winning enough games to stay plenty afloat. But no one in this rotation at the moment has proved particularly adept at going deep into games. Even I mean, well, to an extent, Carrasco is the only guy who's kind of gone deep in games this year because he's gone more right. than seven twice. Um, but he also mm-hmm. broke down a little bit in that last start in the middle innings. So yeah. I don't know about that. Like David Peterson, I think, is is actually an effective major league pitcher right now at this point, as is Trevor Williams. Effective enough to keep Mets in games. But these are yes. not guys, even and McGill to this extent too. McGill was has kind of, you know, even with his success this year, has been a five or six inning guy max. Uh, these are guys who do not mm-hmm. go who do not go deep in the games. And right. when your bullpen has to get four innings every single game, any game that you win, if they have to get 12 outs, then and I apologize, the cat has woken up. Um Hey if, blue. If, <laughs> hey blue. Uh, if your if your bullpen has to get twelve outs every game that you win, then those games that you win are going to be a lot more stressful. Eventually, because yeah. those outs yeah. start to pile up. Yeah. Well, I I think a lot of it probably can be resolved simply in like really any one of these guys behind Carrasco also being reliable. Like I think that as much as I enjoy the Chris Bassett like pitch mix. He needs to start being – he needs to be more efficient with his yeah. innings because some of these innings just simply take too long. He um, threw 34 pitches in, in an inning in which he only gave up one run. and Right. Like, well, was this the plumber inning? That was the – yeah, that was the the long third inning okay. that they were talking to Alonzo the entire time, which was yeah. ridiculous. But uh, Good old I, ESPN, yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think that – listen, Bassett's had the two clunkers against the Giants, but outside of that, he's been very, very good. Yeah, um, yeah. It, it stinks that Scherzer's on the shelf because he's the guy who has right. been the workhorse this year. Is the guy who you can really pencil in for between six and seven full uh, every single time he goes out there, regardless of how effective he is. He's a guy that is able to keep himself efficient enough so that he can get you uh, 18 outs at least every single time. Yeah. Um, and so him being on the shelf hurts. Um, I think McGill coming back and you get to move Trevor Williams back to the bullpen will be nice. But in general, this rotation needs to do a better job of getting deeper into games. Taiwan Walker had a shaky five against the Phillies on Saturday. Yeah. I don't know, man. It's, it's, you need, you need a little bit more out of these guys. Yeah. It's going to be interesting too, to see how Walker um, pitches this week against the Dodgers because his game log, is pretty much almost entirely Phillies. It's been like four starts against them, and then he has the one against the Nationals. Um, and, and I don't. He's know. another I mean, guy. He's. I'm sorry to interrupt you. Like, yeah, he's another guy that I'm waiting for the shoe to drop on because yeah. he's not striking guys out, and there's a whole lot of blue on his baseball savant page. Right. And he had the one bad start against the Phillies, but besides that, he's been pretty good at preventing runs. He had the seven shutout frames in Colorado. I don't know how that happened. I'm not complaining. 
it's it's I, I don't get it but I'm waiting for him to just have a stretch of three or four starts similar to his bad stretch last season where he's given up four or five runs every out yeah yeah and and this is the stretch too I mean we talked about it last week but this really is the stretch too where like things like that are probably most likely to happen even if this team is in a really good position to continue winning games I think like they're going to be tested on the pitching front because these offenses, the Dodgers offense and the Padres offense, especially are like these, these two teams are powerhouses. And we yeah. saw what happened with the giants. I mean, as, as the angels as score players, a lot of runs too. the angels too. Yeah. Cause they got like Taylor Ward mashing out for some reason. Trout um, Otani Taylor Ward have, have proven to be like the most effective offensive three headed monster in baseball this year. Yeah. And then behind them, it's Rendon and Jared Walsh who are actually, well, and Brandon Marsh, like suddenly, I don't know. I, it'll be fun to see how they work with uh, if they end up hitting against Syndergaard, if they get anything going, because he's like a totally different pitcher now um, in terms of like his, I guess, approach and, and the reliance on the sinker and the slider more so than blowing anyone away. Yeah, he's a 92 to 95 sinker ball guy now right. who just puts the ball on the ground a lot. I'm really looking forward to that series in general because it's always same way kind of why I was looking forward to the Mariners series just because it's always fun to see those teams that you never see. Yeah. Um, and with guys like Ward having breakout seasons and, you know, we never get to watch Mike Trout. So uh, that'll be fun. Um, but I agree with you. I think that there's cause for concern with this rotation heading into this stretch. And you, you really hope that you can get McGill back. Can you, can you imagine a year ago us talking about us needing Tyler McGill to get back into this rotation? Yeah, that would be a weird something would have to go really wrong in the simulation like for that to happen but I guess last year it it did because um even going back you know, like um, yeah even going back like 10 months to when we had seen a handful of McGill starts right being like now he's like a power pitcher right yeah he was probably looking a little bit like I don't know I don't want to say he looked like the way Taiwan Walker's looked this year because that's probably a little bit unfair in terms of like velo but it was definitely a waiting for the shoe to drop situation. And, and the shoe like kind of did drop towards the end of the year. It's a workload thing with him, but no, I'm hoping that when he comes back, um, he'll actually be ready to come back too, because the biceps issue, I don't think we got to talk about it last week, but I was reading, um, I think it was Dan Zimborski who found this, that uh, McGill's like release point with his, with his pitches had been basically dipping from almost at like a 12 o'clock angle, so to speak, extremely vertical to just more and more horizontal with every start before the biceps tendonitis happened. Um, like it may not actually be sustainable for him physically to go out there and pitch like he did on opening day every time out. But if he can still be something to the extent of Peterson with a few more innings, um, just in terms of effectiveness um, and comfort like that, that would probably be enough. But yeah, it's weird because they're they continue yeah. to like get further apart from the 500 mark and their record continues to get better. But I also just feel like they're more and more on the brink of something happening. I don't know. Maybe that's just like the way that it, you're designed to feel as a Met fan, just about watching a team that's suddenly really good. But um, yeah, I don't know. I'm, I'm definitely like anxious. I did. I definitely I did see that tweet, too, about the release point on him. I think. Yeah. There's, there's obviously that, that maybe it's not sustainable for him to keep throwing, you know, coming out of the shoot in games, throwing 98. 
as fun as that was on, you know, opening day. It could also be the flip side of it in that the biceps tendonitis was bothering him for longer than we know. And maybe this was him kind of compromising his body to deal with the pain that he was, you know, how it is when pitchers have arm troubles. I had my share of arm troubles too in high school. Like you adjust your mechanics, whether you're doing it consciously or not to take some of the pain away when you're pitching through pain. So, Oh yeah. Maybe, maybe that was part of it. And maybe that's definitely was, but the results while he was doing that were not very good. So it's a situation in which I'm concerned that if he has to continue to throw that way to stay healthy, is he actually going to continue getting results? Um, that's like where I'm more concerned. Um, and we'll see that. Does seem, yeah. And we will see, and hopefully I'm wrong because yeah. he has yeah. had really good moments, um, in between even, you know, after opening day. So all it's going to take is, is his first minor league rehab start, which might happen next week yeah. to, uh, to see, he's going to throw a live bullpen this week. And then they, they say that he's going to probably need one or two minor league rehab starts, and then he'll be back in the rotation. If, yeah. you know, we can get that track man data. In, in a minor league rehab start, especially one in, in Syracuse, if that's where they put him, uh, if that release point has moved more vertical from where it was in his last couple of major league starts, then we'll, then we'll see if maybe it was a correction on the injury or not. Um, and if there's a correlation with the velocity and the effectiveness too, based on release point, we'll also see if he is more vertical and he's also throwing 98, then, then we'll know that he probably throws harder when he's able to throw more over the top. Yeah. Um, which will be, that's, that's just interesting baseball science stuff, which I think will yeah. be cool to see, but oh, yeah. it will, it will also give us some indication on what kind of Tyler McGill we're going to get back because the mm-hmm. Tyler McGill last year was definitely more of a high three quarter guy who was like 92 to 94 with some sink. Yeah. Um, and this year it's been more 95 plus over the top four seamers. Right. With that new slider. And then that, and that's the other thing too. Maybe it's a matter of just getting accustomed to that pitch um, that he's been working on and just sort of getting over yeah. the, um, the hill with it. I mean, that's something that could be possible. The good thing, I guess, about this in terms of the rotation is, I mean, we're looking at probably like, I want to say, think in the June 10th to June 15th, 16th range with him, right? We're probably not up on any games in which we're not going to have any scenarios in which we're bumping into double headers or otherwise having to work around uh, the current five-man framework. Like we're never going to get as a pucky start. Hopefully if everything stays as is between now and when McGill comes back, I don't, there doesn't seem to be any sort of forecast situation in which we would need Thomas a pucky to pitch. Cause they're also going West where like, it just, you never get bad weather. Um, which will be nice. Although these teams are also good. So like, there's that aspect to it too, but like, yeah, I mean, hopefully we don't get some pucky. I mean, what happens really what happens now, if you need another starter, like, is it, is it Jose Budo that they go to? Is it Medina again? Like it, it probably, um, well, it depends on how stretched out Medina is. Cause if he's any yeah. sort of stretched out, if you can squeeze four or five innings out of him, then he's probably the guy just cause he's been up before Budo. I know everyone was really, really excited about him when the season started and he was striking out everyone in double A, but he's very quietly running ERA above four since then. He doesn't really have a breaking ball. It's mostly fastball changeup. Like if the Mets thought that he was anywhere close to ready, 
to, you know, move past double A, he would be in triple A by now. So unfortunately for, you know, that camp where he needs to develop more, he is on the 40 man roster. And if push comes to shove and his spot comes around and they need a spot starter, then he might just be the guy, Um, which we, you know, I, I remember very vividly the last time the Mets had to call up a, a, a double A pitcher who was on the 40 man roster and it screwed him up completely development wise. It was Chris Flexen. That's right. Uh, yeah, he, it was. I thought it was not, single A that they called him up from. No, Flexen had been in double A for about half a season. He had been pitching great in Binghamton. Yeah. And then he came up and he got nobody out um, and actually got himself hurt during one of those stints in the majors. And, and yeah. it, they completely accelerated his development. Uh, to the point where it, it hurt him to actually go back down to triple a and, and, you know, it took him going uh, overseas to kind of fix himself. Right. Um, and to think they did that to him in like the middle of a lost season too, like in 2017, like that, that year sucked. I'm not going to go off on a tangent about it, but like that year was terrible. And that was like really bad management, I think, or bad yeah. executive it, decision-making on, on you, their part. You definitely at this point with, I guess Thomas Sapucky being your sixth starter on the depth chart right now, which is concerning because, you know, he can't get any major leaguer out any, you know, either is you start looking at who you can pick up for cheap. And there's two guys on the waiver wire right now who neither of them are good, but they've both garnered some attention uh, from Mets fans online this week and that's dallas keichel and aaron sanchez who were designated for assignment by the white Sox and nationals um this week and listen keichel has been terrible he's been genuinely terrible he's in year three of a three-year deal with the white Sox. that probably wasn't a very good contract to begin with uh he doesn't really he's been giving up a lot of fly balls more so than he ever has in his career he's been giving up a lot of home runs he's walking as many guys as he's striking out he's just there's a reason he got dfa'd he was terribly ineffective for the white Sox this year and aaron sanchez is a guy who's been hurt for years since the days when he came up with the the very good marcus stroman era blue jays um who threw hard and had a good curveball and has been hurt so much that he's like a 91 92 guy now and again wasn't very effective for the nationals so those are really those are the two guys that are out there right now to pick up off the scrap heap and i don't i don't like either of them but you're at a point with this rotation depth where if dallas keichel takes you know if you can get him for free and you can stick him in triple a and he's willing to do that is there a downside? No, probably not. I mean, he gets the starts that like you'd be giving to Mike Montgomery. Like I'm sure that's better, but it also has, I mean, yeah, it, it's been, I, I feel like somebody would probably pick him up just because pitching is always kind of at a premium and some team is probably going to need a, a fresh arm. And in Keiko's case, you have somebody who you could potentially um, rehabilitate in some way and then try and trade if you're you know if you're a bad team looking to potentially get some value at the deadline um, so I don't know I think with Keiko you probably need to act now Aaron Sanchez is probably a little bit more realistic but he's also I think like got a much lower ceiling um, and he basically doesn't have a fastball anymore he has no velo on it the spin 
which used to be what I think like is really his calling card when he was a Blue Jay because he had this great sinker that he could play off of a curveball. Like now that there's no spin, um, the curveball. I mean, we saw him kind of spam it against the Mets a couple of times. It's not really like that exciting of a pitch but also if he's the guy I think he would be more likely to be available in say two or three weeks um if you needed an arm by then but also is that really is it that much better than um you know than like than like Felix Pena I don't really know the Um, other option that you could probably get for close to nothing is Bartolo Colon well I would never say that you and I are both very much on the same page about him I think and that we should just bury the meme and and let it die but yes I was going to suggest the guy who's leading the Atlantic League of Independent Baseball in strikeouts right now who is Julio Tehran for the Staten Island Ferry Hawks yeah bring him bring him home yeah give him give him a I remember he was he's been like a former future met a couple times no like when they were looking at guys like Porcello and Waka like to replace Wheeler and like obviously you're not replacing Zach Wheeler now but yeah if he's good man just try it it could be good he probably doesn't stink quite as bad as as Keiko right now right like if Keiko's been like Jason Vargas bad so yeah probably not it could be interesting putting that out there not that necessarily you know not beating on the drum for a major league deal or whatever, but if Keiko or um, if Tehran wants to get out of independent baseball and uh, catch on in AAA for for a few weeks and see how that goes in Syracuse, then I would be in favor. I think I think that that's an experiment that could work out. Um, I don't think you can promise him big league innings, especially if guys are starting to be on the mend. But who knows? Speaking of guys on the mend. Is it time to talk about the Jacob deGrom of it all? I think so. I think I think we can come out of the cave with him, right? I mean, he's been throwing. He's been he, throwing from a distance. He says he feels completely normal. He's uh, my completely normal shirt has uh, prompted a lot of questions answered by my – no, I mean – it is it the, the wording of it is kind of funny. I feel completely normal in the wake of everything that's happened. Like, yeah, I, I mean, I, I would hope, right? But, yeah, I don't know. Like, God, I'd love to have him back soon. But also, you know that if he gets rushed back, you have the, the much greater chance that he actually hurts himself again. He's, um, he, he's throwing from um, – he's still on flat ground, but yeah. he is throwing. He's gotten up to 135 feet, which if you count your math, that's like – more than twice the distance from the mound to home plate, which yeah, is long tossing. Yeah, he's yeah. <laughs> yeah. So if he can do that throw, he could probably do the throw from the mound a few times. Yeah. It's uh, easier on the mound too, because you have the, the it, it's on a decline. So the yeah. ball will naturally come out a little bit harder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, right now, Jacob DeGrom, as he currently is right now, would probably still be better than Thomas Apaki. Probably. Um, and there's think, a chance that DeGrom is not actually like ready to throw, but like, yeah. Well, we're not ready to throw, ready to pitch. He's just waiting on medical clearance to get back on a mound, which I don't know when that's going to happen. I don't know what the next step is for him. The next step, hopefully, is, you know, image the shoulder one more time, do a few tests with him with a medical doctor who is, you know, certified by the team to, give these kind of opinions um and and hopefully get the a-ok to start working up on a mound while the team is out west and 
hopefully by the time we're back from the West Coast, he's facing live hitters and maybe even working his way into some rehab starts. Hey, man, the St. Lucie Mets have some matchups against the West Palm Beach Cardinals coming up. I was going to say, I'm sure those guys would love to see him again. That would be that'd be some good some good content. You know, they they, they really, I think, wore that one pretty well. The nice thing, though, I guess to think about with DeGrom is that this is about as far as he came. Once he gets to the bullpen phase of this, if he gets past his bullpens without any problems, he'll be in a better place to return than he really ever was after July of last year. Because he never got cleared to do rehab starts after um, after that that injury in July that knocked him out the rest of the season. It was yeah. always he always had some trouble moving forward once he started throwing from from the you know from the bullpen. So this is basically like the this is kind of the tipping point in terms of whether or not he's salvageable, so to speak, or if this is just kind of a, a constant stumbling block for him. But it's a huge one because, I mean, not so much just for the team, but for his own value as a free agent right now, especially with the year that he falls a little bit down on the uh, looking for free agent starters if he's not if he's not 100%. So um, yeah, I'm definitely thinking about that a little bit. But yeah, it's got to be in the it back. It would of your be mind. cool to get him back soon. Yeah. It would be it would be cool from a hey, let's win the World Series perspective. Um, certainly to have him back at all this year. Uh, him and Scherzer. Listen, I'm in the, the boat where they just need to be 100 percent by September, and assuming that the team is still in primo position, um, they need to be fully leading this rotation. Um, for the last for the home stretch of the season and to be healthy come postseason because I feel really really good about this baseball team in the postseason if both of these guys are healthy yes. and I think I think I have every right to feel that way they were talking about a little bit on the the ESPN cast last night and I have issues with that ESPN cast in general I always do every single year yeah. um, but David Cohn is a good analyst he is as good an analyst as they've had in that booth in a, in a few years and he, he made a point last night about it doesn't matter what offense you have. It doesn't matter if you're the Dodgers. It doesn't matter if you're the Padres. It doesn't matter if you're the Brewers or the Braves. If you have to match up with the Mets and the NLDS and you have DeGrom go game one and Scherzer go game two, you're screwed. If the Mets can score any runs at all, you're screwed in that series because the Mets – the, the, the easy work is done for the Mets for the most part in those series. He's still going to win those baseball games, but in a best of five, those are two. You're going to have to face those guys three out of five games, at least maybe four, if someone goes on short rest. Right. Yeah. No, so I, I, I feel, think, yeah. I feel very good about this baseball. And then you, if the Mets advance to a seven game series, you're getting two starts out of each of them. Right. Yeah, well, that's if you, I mean, that's if you have to go that deep into the series, but no, I, I, yeah, I definitely in a situation there where as long as even three of your guys are hitting in a game where DeGrom or Scherzer is starting, it is an automatic win. Um, you just got to have guess, a guy run into a, you got to have Pete Alonso run into one with guys on base and it's a win. Yeah. Yeah. I guess the only thing, this is probably the point in the conversation where I would, as I always do say that like, well, we haven't seen it yet. We haven't seen DeGrom and Scherzer do this yet. 
Uh, we were told we were going to get this. We all thought we were going to get it. We saw it in spring training and we were excited about it. And, you know, even when DeGrom was down, it was like, all right, well, we still have Scherzer. And then we didn't have him. Um, there's always the torture arc that I try to account for with this. Um, Cause it, I mean, it is real and I'm just trying not to get my hopes up too high, but at the same time, I mean, you look at the teams historically that have gotten off to, I mean, we talked a little bit about this at the end of that first uh, or that last Philly series, the week before the Brody bowl, when we um, went off for graduations, but we looked at the teams that had historically gotten off to, I think it was winning like 20 something uh, like 23 of their first 35 games or something. And we looked at a lot of really good teams uh, whittling it down even further right now that we're through 49 games. Um, this is a good group to be a part of. It's probably a, a more distinctly good group than the last one um, with the record they have, right? They're 32 and 17. Um, among the teams that have won at least 32 of their first 49 games, you have this year's group, you have the 2017 that won 32 also, and that obviously didn't end very well, but they were also competitive through the entire season. Um, 1972, they won 33. That was pretty, that was pretty good. And then you have potentially two of just the most dominating teams, at least during the regular season of all time. You have the 86 team and the 88 team that each won 34, right? So you're now at a point where you're really up there with the best teams. Um, so I don't know, maybe this, maybe this really is the year and they keep winning the games that they're supposed to lose. Um, which is just a real, I think, break in the simulation because uh, that's happened a bunch of times. And even I think after what was a pretty backbreaking loss on Tuesday night, which I, we don't really need to go into a, a whole lot just because we're on good vibes now and the team hit really well, obviously, during that game. And, uh, you know, that's like the one bad game Edwin Diaz has really had, whatever. But I, I don't know. Between those, I think, like three innings of kind of giving the game away and then the first inning of this hockey game, that may be so far just like the most uh, embarrassing stretch of, of, of games, but not necessarily the low point. And yet they still bounce back and turn in a sweep, right? Their first sweep of the year, yeah. even against the Phillies team that was kind of asking for it. They still delivered because they, they don't always do that. And... I think that this is a key series coming up against the Nationals because there's there's no bones to pick about it. The Nationals are a bad baseball team. They got Eric Fetty tonight. Like they can keep winning. There's no reason why they can't yeah. sweep consecutive series and sweep the homestand before heading out west. Like I think, especially given the nature of the West Coast trip, there is the best case scenario is to provide a little bit of a cushion for yourself in the best way to do that. And to go into the West coast with good vibes yeah, is sweep away this Nats team and, and go in with, you know, a six game win streak. Yeah. I don't Why think they've not? won more than four in a row to this point this year. They hadn't because they hadn't swept a series. Yeah. Get to dude, get to it. Get that. Uh, uh, Get the win streak. There's, that's the one thing this team has been missing. You don't want to be nine and thirty-one. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is the one thing I that think the team that's has probably missing. the one thing that they'll need. Yeah. yeah, the one thing the team has been missing is is a is a long winning streak. Like the Yankees have been great this season. 
Uh, there's no really way to argue against that. Both the Mets and the Yankees have played excellent, excellent baseball this season. The Yankees have had an 11-game win streak that really propelled them to the point that they're at right now. The Mets have just been winning series after series after series. Um, so if the Mets can mix in a win streak here, uh, then that would go a long way in providing the kind of cushion. Like they they had the giant, you know, in 2018 when they started 11 and one. Yeah, that was early enough in the season that when they played poorly later on in the season, that 10 game cushion uh, completely dissipated. Right. In 2015, when they started 13 and three, because they had that 10 game win streak our 11 game win streak in 2015 that did them well to keep themselves at a 500 level by um, the trade deadline, but it still was a cushion that dissipated through the middle months of the season because they played some middling baseball in May and June. If this team with the cushion they've given themselves already can rattle off seven, eight, nine wins in a row. I, I don't think that they're going to be able to, work back on that cushion i think that we'll be in as good a position to at least be well above 500 come deadline and hopefully have enough cushion to kind of just coast for uh for a good long while until uh it kind of becomes a push comes to shove time and they need to start putting away the division for real in the the last third of the season yeah yeah i think that really it's just a matter of like big picture stuff with them because if you are to blow this cushion in some way um it's probably no longer kosher to talk about what kind of chance they have in the playoffs against like the dodgers or giants right you go from being a team that has won your division handily to a team that basically survived the nl east while four other teams never got to 500 never challenged you um and then you you basically can easily be a three and out in any sort of matchup in, in October. Um, so I think that like, yes, they can probably still win the division if they rattle off a win streak now and have a really bad road trip and then play 500 ball the West, so the rest of the way. But I think really with the way they're playing now and how they stack up record wise against the rest of the league, like you got to just, you really got to, treat this this west coast trip like it's you know your first uh october battle i think because you're going to be playing teams that are going to be in september extremely competitive it'll be really interesting to see how they match up against this dodgers team yeah um and sometimes it's not always indicative of like the 2015 got swept out in the regular season by the cubs and then swept them in the nlcs so you never really it's different in October. Sometimes things change between the regular season and October in terms of how these teams match up head to head. But I agree with you. I think that yeah. they got to treat this as a test. I think you got to get through the nationals, got to win this series, hopefully got to sweep this series, go to the West coast with good vibes, have a happy plan right out there and then square off for four against the Dodgers and, and have a good West coast trip as good a West coast trip as you can. And hopefully when you come back East, you're still in primo position here in this division. I think we are getting ahead of ourselves with the postseason talk. Obviously, sure. they've only played 49 games. Uh, things can change. There's still over 100 games left in the season, but the trends are really good. The trends are really good. And this is the most excited I've been 
uh, to be a Mets fan in a few years. So the trends are, are really, really good. And I feel as though we've been appropriately rewarded for some of our patience, at least to start this season. Oh, absolutely. Um, probably the best start that I've seen since 06. And I talked about this last week when I mentioned how, you know, how they stack up against teams past, right, for a road trip like this. And I really do – I still maintain that I think that they're in a really good position as a group to win these next few games. I just think um, – I don't know. I definitely think that this is the point where you really have to start thinking, like, long-term just about what you're going to look like. Because I think 2015, right, October is obviously different. I think my argument with the Cubs example would just be that they got swept – before they had a bullpen, uh, they got swept before they had Steven Matz. They got swept before they got swept basically after with one game of Noah Syndergaard and like three games of Dylan G. Um, like they got swept before they had Johan Cespedes. Uh, like they came into that championship series, a very different team. I think this group, save for maybe one or two acquisitions in July is this is really like the, these are the Titans that you're taking in with you. Um, so you need, this is the time to, I think, put up. I think they will though. I think well, if the Philly series is any indication, I think that this is where, um, you know, this is where they, they're in a good spot to do it. I have to push back on that slightly because I agree that, you know, this team might make a big trade or whatever come late July, but the team that the Dodgers are seeing this weekend is not going to be the same team that they see in, in a postseason series because, as we were talking about, the Mets are missing their two best players. Like, sure. in a postseason, you would, you would hope that everything goes to plan with Scherzer and DeGrom's recovery and that the Dodgers aren't seeing those two guys this weekend. They might have to see him in a postseason series. So I, I got to push back and say that yeah, this team, the Mets right now are not going to look too differently. You would think, you know, hopefully they have another bat and another arm in the bullpen, but in a postseason series, I can't, I can't agree with the fact that the Mets won't be that much better than they are right now. Cause they could be very better. They could be, that's not English, but they could be very much better. They could be a better yeah. team in October yeah. than they are right now. And yeah. And we got to see how that, that happens, but uh, you certainly have reason to believe that the Mets that we have right now are going to look a little different in September, October. And that's not going to be a bad, you know, hopefully wouldn't be a bad thing. It could be a bad thing. You know, obviously things can change in a negative sense. Two guys can get hurt, but uh, you hope that it only gets better from here in terms of the injuries and in terms of guys coming back. Yeah, I think that's fair. And I think, yeah, that's probably something I should think more about. Um and I, I usually hate the idea of like not doing stuff at the deadline because like guys come back from injuries and, and they're your big off they're they're, they're your big acquisitions because that's something we heard for multiple seasons with you know assessment right. is reasons why the Will Pontian Mets weren't making the moves that they probably should have made because oh we're you know Cespedes was hurt last season we're getting him back you know he's gonna be a big big acquisition for us and you know just by getting him back in the lineup but I think in this case. It, it really is going to help is getting Scherzer and DeGrom back. For sure. I still, I, I guess with the, the thing about the deadline discourse is more so that like, even if you have guys coming back, 
the guys that are tradable or, or, you know, that you can acquire will just go to another team. And we saw this with Jock Peterson, Eddie Rosario, Jorge Soler, every bat, like, you know, every reliever going to the Braves and then the Braves winning the World Series. Like, you don't want to, you don't want to lose opportunities to get better. And you don't want your enemy to just pick those up because you didn't act. But also, yeah, I think that in terms of DeGrom Scherzer coming back, it, it is probably better than anything you could get on the on the deadline you know, market. I just don't I don't believe in just, you know, letting other teams pick guys up because you're good or well, certainly not. Yeah. yeah. Like if if there's a guy to get out there, like if the Red Sox stop playing well and fall off again and are willing to trade J.D. Martinez, I think there's absolutely a deal to be had there. And I think that J.D. Martinez could help the Mets a lot because one more big power bat in the middle of this lineup, it, it would go a long way for this team because as good as they've been offensively, and they are good, they are, um, you know, third in the league in ISO, which is surprising because honestly, they haven't been a significant power hitting team. They're second in WOBA, they're second in OPS, they're second in WRC+. Plus. Uh, there's really only one guy in this lineup who I'm like, you know, comes up with two guys on. And I'm like, okay, this is a situation where they could put a game away with a three run homer. And that's Alonzo. Um, you know, Lindor started to hit the ball out of the ballpark a little bit more still waiting for Starling Marte to do that. Nemo, maybe the reason he hasn't been hitting quite for as much power is because he's been dealing with this wrist thing and wrist things tend to sap some power. McNeil's hit a couple of home runs this week, but Escobar and Canna really haven't hit for much power. It's, it's again, I think we've talked about this idea of the other shoe dropping at some point with this team. And they are certainly capable of going on a stretch where they lose six of eight or whatever um, if the offense falls off and, and they run into some bad starts with Walker and Peterson and, and uh, Trevor Williams or whatever. But another bat, another guy who can hit a baseball 400 and 50 feet, I think would, would help immensely in this lineup. And I think that's an area that they got to go to in, in the deadline, but they also need a reliever. So at least a, one reliever, you know, having Trevor Maybach would also help, but they also should probably go and get like a, a guy who's left-handed who can pitch to both sides. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And is not named Brad hand, but yes, I no, certainly um, I know. <laughs> yeah. Um, no Brad hand. Any, yeah. Well, yeah, it's just really last year. Uh, yeah, yeah, I guess just like disclaimer, um, the ISO and Woba stats, those are from this past week. I don't know how they stack up in the aggregate this season, but this past week, they've basically been like the best offensive team in the National League. Um, okay, yeah. That is... I, you know, everything you said about each individual player still stands. Like Escobar and Canna hitting for more power, like that might come around. That might happen soon. At least Canna getting on base more because he didn't even draw a walk this week. Um and his at-bats have been fine, right? It's weird. Like, he, he seems to stretch at-bats to eight, nine pitches at least once a game, but he doesn't – his walk rate is, like, half of what it usually is. Like, yeah. I'm sure that's going to come around. And He still sees as many pitches as anybody in the sport. Yeah. Yeah, he's still he's still doing his thing real well. Um, I don't have much else to add about this group, um, except that I'm really excited for them, and they just get better every week. And this is, you know, really the – every week seems more important than the last, but they seem to stand yeah. up to it. I think I'm ready to remember some guys after you go on this. Yeah. Yeah. I think warranting mention before we go off and remember some guys or some storylines this week that we didn't touch on offensively. Um, yeah. One, 
Francisco Lindor is on a tear right now. He is yes. hitting. He's he's playing some really really good baseball. He also has the longest RBI stretch of his career and the longest RBI stretch by a shortstop in Mets history. And it's up there with team history too. He's he's got the longest one since Wilson Ramos in 2019. He's driven in 15 runs over his last seven games now. Um, or is it eight games? Was the Sunday night game his eighth game with an RBI? It was at least his seventh. Uh, anyways, he's driving in runs willy-nilly. He's getting up towards the, the league lead in RBIs. He's top 10 now, if not top five. Pete Alonso leads baseball in RBIs. He keeps driving in runs. He's got 46 this year. Um, he has 29 in the month of May alone. Um, and is still has two games left in May to break the all-time Mets record for RBIs in a month, which I believe is 34. Um, so we'll see if he can get up to that. Probably not, but yeah. still been a great month. And then Luis Guillorme. Uh, we talked about him briefly last week, but this guy just gets on base all the time. He finds ways to get on base. He works walks. He dumps singles in front of guys in the outfield. He slashes singles over the third base bag. He bunts perfectly occasionally. Like he had, he he went three for three in the Saturday game with uh, with a walk. Got on base all four times, and then he led off the Sunday game with a double over Kyle Schwarber's head. Like this guy is incredible. Yeah, yeah. I he reminds me a lot of um, like what they had with Andy Chavez all those years ago, where like you always know you're getting really good defense, but um, Chavez would go on like these tears. I think in 06 too, he probably had his best offensive season, and it ultimately was all like an outlier for him because of how good he was that year. Because um, he was never like a bat first guy. Like if this is a Andy Chavez year for Guillorme, that's huge, um, yeah. and it's going to make this team a lot better. Just having him as your first guy off the bench. Who can play defense and can actually start? He can spell any dude in the field and he can hit. Um, yeah, not any dude, no outfielders, but yeah, any infielders, you know, and yeah. an outfielder to an extent too, because you can always stick Jeff, stick, uh, Jeff McNeil out in the outfield for um, sure. Yeah, by proxy, I guess that's yeah, that's how that would go. Yeah, it's just really cool. He's a guy who every time he's gotten consistent playing time at any level, the bat has always come around. He's always hit three hundred or so. He doesn't have any power, but he works good at bats. He makes a ton of contact. He doesn't strike out. Um, so he's he's super fun and obviously has, like, the best hands of any infielder in baseball. Like, he is as good defensively as you can ask for. Um, it's Guillaume time is what I'm trying to say. Uh, he's super fun. I love watching him play. He's just – uh, he's the adjectives have run out because – I'm at a loss of words with him because he's not a guy you expect to be successful, but he's hitting like 400 over his last like 50 at bats or something. Yeah, It's goofy. It's silly. Baseball doesn't make sense. Sometimes a guy with 20 pop is able to just dump hits in constantly. It's great. Let's remember some guys. That's right. Um, who went first last time? Um, I don't I'll, remember. I'll, I'll, yeah. I can defer to you for this one. Um, all right. Well, the Nick Plummer situation last night got me thinking a little bit. And thankfully, I, I was sort of just inspired by this tweet that came out. Um, Sarah Langs, S Langs on sports on Twitter. Um, I got to interrupt you. Yes. We have the same guy. We do? Uh, we absolutely have the same guy. 
Okay. Well, this is great because I don't, he is really a guy. I'm fine to just like, we can just have Let's a shared do guy today. Let's I don't think do that's it. ever happened. Let's do um, it. And we can share stories too. Uh, I'll read the tweet. And if this is the tweet, we'll just know. But Nick Plummer is the first Met with the game tying home run. Yep. It's him. All right. With the game tying home run in the ninth inning or later for his first career home run since June 4th of 2006. Off of Armando Benitez, this home run was hit by none other than Lasting's Millage. Yes. Um, Lasting's Millage proceeded to high-five the fans uh, on his way out to left field after he hit that home run because it tied the game, but they didn't win. They had to go to extra innings. Millage stayed in left field um, as, you know, as a defensive replacement, and he high-fived the fans on his way out. It was awesome. Uh, it was him just, I think, just enjoying that moment. Because first big league home run, it always has to be just like as a baseball player, right? The biggest moment of your life because you've worked your ass off for it. And it's a moment where it's pretty much all about you. Um, you're hitting a home run. You're putting your team in this position to win. And it's your first. Um, and your team knows. The fans know. And for Millage, uh, you know, because it tied the game in the ninth inning, it was, you know, I think he he probably was – very caught in the moment doing that, but also it wasn't like a bad thing to do. Like, I, I think that it was pretty cool and the fans appreciated it, but the team totally tore him a new one for it. And unfortunately for Millage, he kind of never had another moment like that, that season, um, at least that year, the rest of his rookie year, he had some trouble playing the outfield. So like, you know, it wasn't like he was a, a perfect player, but he was supposed to be a very good hitter and, and his, you know, his first home run coming in a spot like that, it was a pretty clear indication that he was going to be that guy. And the team, like, I think it was Billy Wagner who left like a note at his locker that said, know your place, Rook, after that. Like the team just stonewalled him for doing that. I mean, we talk about veteran presence. We talk about it being a great thing. And I think this group, it's good because these are good veterans. Sometimes having veterans around just means having really good proven players around. And I think in 2006, unfortunately, save for a couple really just genuinely nice guys like Delgado and Beltran, um, they had a lot of veterans who just did not, they probably resented Millage for being like the only young player there. Um, guys like Wagner, guys like LaDuca um, were very salty and, and very, I think, uninviting and hostile towards players like Millage. Um, he definitely was just playing in the wrong era. Uh, yeah, it's. I think that would is something that would be a lot more welcome nowadays. Um, and I don't know. I was also yeah. Obviously, I was also going to remember Blasting's Thrillage, um, right? Who was a you know a first round pick by the Mets in two thousand three, but he never hit great with the Mets. He was fine in two thousand seven in his yeah. second season, uh, but they kind of shipped him out rather expeditiously the first, you know, in the off season between 06 and 07 or uh, 07 and 08, rather they sent him to the nationals for Ryan church and Brian Schneider, uh, which in and of itself is a weird trade. Um, yeah. You know, they, they had a need to catcher with Leduca leaving and, and they had a need in the outfield with Cliff Floyd leaving and they brought in those two guys and they were both decent players for the Mets, but you know, it seemed a little soon to give up on millage um, and to ship him out for two guys who were not supremely above average offensive players. Um, 
Yeah. So that was interesting. And yeah, I think there's a conversation that's worth at least mentioning that in 2006, 2007 baseball, we weren't used to seeing players have that much personality, not nearly as much as we are now. Like, would you be shocked if Fernando Tatis Jr. did something like that nowadays? No, I wouldn't be shocked if he did, or if Ronald Acuna did something like that nowadays. And yeah, I could see some people getting, you know, a little up in arms about it, but I think it would be much more uh, accepted nowadays, some behavior like that. I certainly wouldn't have had an issue with it in 2007 had I been cognizant of it instead of being, you know, seven years old and not really paying attention to baseball yet. Uh, It's weird. It's so weird to me. And I think there is just a touch of the kind of institutional racism that baseball has dealt with yeah uh in which it kind of aims to quiet the personalities of minority ballplayers sometimes and it's something that we've dealt with in even recent years is that there was a whole big stink about uh, jose fernandez when he hit a home run the braves felt the need to get up on his face brian mccann you know when he rounded the bases he's a pitcher hitting Mm -hmm. a home run he's a big personality it's super fun when that kind of stuff happens ronald acuna the the marlins throwing at him um just because he was hitting really well against them and hitting a bunch of home runs against them and, and pimping, yeah. you know, throwing his bat around like Tatis, Tatis like, always. Uh, yeah. The, yeah. Always with him, with the, your mean Mercedes, the Rangers last year with Tatis in the grand slam. Yeah. Like yeah. your mean Mercedes and his own manager um, mm-hmm. doing that stuff. So we, it's, it's something that just never happens to white players. And you wonder if, that was an aspect of it with Millage um, and why he never really got a chance in New York and certainly never really got a chance anywhere else. The Nationals only really had him for a season and a half. Um, he had an okay season in 08 with them. And then they shipped him off to Pittsburgh um, for with Joel Hanrahan for Sean Burnett and Nigel Morgan, which is an interesting trade too. But uh, he never really made it in Pittsburgh either. He had half a season in Pittsburgh or, uh, or also a season and a half or whatever. And then he had two games right. as a White Sox in 2011 as a 26-year-old and was out of baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he was, a, he was a prized prospect with the, uh, with the Mets because it was really like – Yeah, former first-rounder. He was the third guy behind Wright and Reyes. Um, but for whatever reason, I think they just sort of, you know, put the put – the, put the door up on him and just told him like, you can't come in. You can't, I mean, literally telling, leaving a note that says, know your place. Um, just like, if, I don't think that that would have been able to fly in today's game saying something like that to another player, especially a black player. Um, it was just, I also think just if social media had been more of a, of a thing back then, there would have been a lot more support for millage um, because it would have, more people would have seen how I think how cool it was that he hit a home run in the spot that he did. I think, first he, big home run. I think the thing is that he did know his place yeah. and that he knew that he was this big prospect that the fan base was really excited for. And he did something incredibly cool. Right. I think that that is exactly what knowing your place is. Sure. I think yeah. it matters to know your place more in regard with the fan base than, than it is in regard with these veteran players, because like, yeah, you got to, you know, you're new to the clubhouse and like the vets obviously run the clubhouse the way they want to. And 
often veterans are kind of the enforcers for the manager and, and whatever they help out the manager and stuff like that. Yada, yada, yada. But like, if you're a player, you're doing your job for the fans. You're an entertainer. Why not be entertaining if the fans are anticipating you being entertaining? Yeah. I think that team would have been as entertaining as it was. I think they really did miss that kind of dimension, having another young player that um, really engaged with fans the way that he did. Um, it was right. Taken, it yeah. was right. And Reyes were the two quote right. unquote young guys. And then everyone else was kind of this more veteran type. I mean, it was right. right and Reyes and then Beltron was around 30 at that point. Right. Like Glavin, Wagner, Floyd, Sean Green, Jose Valentin. Like these are all over the age of 36, you know? Yeah. Um, but anyway, this took a turn for the depressing. I guess the, 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 the nice thing to know about lasting's millage um, is that even when he was playing, like he was always an advocate for like sort of growing the game, especially in African American communities. Um, spent a lot of his off seasons like at youth camps with football and basketball players trying to convince them to play baseball. Following his retirement, this is from his Wikipedia page, um, he opened the Manatee Inner City Baseball uh, Program in Bradenton, Florida, where he's from. Um, and the mission was to give, um, you know, players of color, children of color, an opportunity to learn and play baseball. And he also owns and operates first round training. Um, which is in Palmetto, Florida. It's a hitting and training facility that aims to mentor and train young players. So um, despite the experience that he probably had in the Mets organization, if not across baseball during this time, he's, um, he's, he's channeled it towards something extremely constructive and extremely, I think, beneficial. And um, that makes me really happy. Yeah, he, he had four decent seasons um, in Tokyo playing yeah. for the, the Swallows and the the Japanese baseball league and he's only 37. So he still has a lot of good to give back to this game. And it's a shame that he never really caught on as a major leaguer for, for one reason or another. Listen, he wasn't a great player as a major league baseball player. He never really hit. Um, but you know, he, I think that that unfortunate incident um, with the note from the veterans in the clubhouse kind of, I think soured how uh, a lot of baseball looked at him. Yeah. And uh, who knows what could have been with Lasting's Millage. The Mets in general at that time in history were not very good at developing their prospects. Yeah. Um, never gave them playing time. That was the real thing. Like, yeah. Like nowadays, if, if you're not going to have a guy playing, every, if he's a prospect of that level is not going to be playing every day, then he's going to be in triple A playing every day. Yeah. Um, but I mean, him and Fernando Martinez and yada, yada, yada. The list goes on and on with, with the busts from that era of Mets baseball. But he also, this is also interesting, is that he debuted on today's date, May 30th in 2006. Wow. So That's... That was, that was going to be part of my reason for remembering him. It was also everyone wow. was talking about him last night with the Nick Plummer homer. But That seems topical. Oh, yeah. Know. I don't know. I don't have much else, honestly. I, I, if, if you haven't seen clips of the home run, you should check it out because Howie Rose gets the call. Uh, it's one of the rare games where like they let Howie Rose um, in the booth because I guess Gary had a Gary had something to attend to. But um, yeah, Howie Rose is just calling games on SNY, so it's kind of a fun Easter egg. Um, and it's a bomb, and it's off Armando Benitez. So if you're like if you remember anything about Armando Benitez, like I'm sure you'll enjoy it. Um, it's a good clip and it's yeah it's 
it's a shame that nothing really came out of that but also it's it's i i always have fun talking about the guy because uh yeah he was he was ahead of his time so that's that's my bit i don't know all right episode 82 here on pge the mets have the nats this week at city field and they head out west to start a three series road trip starting with four in los angeles with the dodgers so we will talk to you guys next week next time that we talk to you i will be coming at you from cape cod massachusetts which will be fun i get to start my my cape league adventure this summer as i head down there later this week that should be super fun we will talk to you guys next week and mets fans have a pleasant good evening Thank you.